Thank you for uh, praying along with me for those needs and just encourage you to continue to do that. Uh, you know, part of life with Jesus, though he isn't physically here with us, this is a part of it. Just spending time with him, spending time together, um, and this morning hearing from God's word. And we're kind of reading through what Jesus is doing, and this passage was a bit longer, chapter 13, the end of that to chapter 16, so we're covering a little bit more here. And as last time we were talking about a little bit more teaching, Jesus was kind of pretty much focused on sharing truth, teaching uh, the disciples, sharing with the crowd. Chapter 13 was doing that now. As we get to the end of chapter 13 into chapter 16, uh, 14, 15, 16, we're kind of following Jesus around again. He's doing more ministry, and as he's doing ministry, he's looking for opportunities for teachable moments. And that's part of life with Jesus. He is always looking for ways, God is always looking for ways to teach us something if we are willing to be open to it. Part of it is hopefully he is teaching you something through this time together on a Sunday morning. But all week long, God is looking for ways to teach you something about him, about life with Jesus, about how we're to respond and act in this kingdom he's called us to, living in an alternate kingdom. That's really what Jesus is trying to help the disciples see. What does life with him in this kingdom look like while I'm living in the kingdoms of this world? You can call it whatever kingdom it is, Rome, America, whatever. Jesus is trying to help us see what life with him looks like. And so as he's doing ministry, he's using opportunities for teachable moments. And what we have in the chapters we're covering, I'm not reading all of it for you like we haven't been. Hopefully you've read it already. If you haven't, take some time today or this week to read the end of 13 all the way to chapter 16. And what you're going to see is a collection of stories. Seven of these stories and then... Uh, what we end with is kind of Peter's response to what he has witnessed so far and really just being the representative of the disciples and the response of the disciples to what they've just witnessed. All of this walking around with Jesus, doing ministry with Jesus, hearing Jesus teach and preach from Matthew 4 when he started that public ministry to what we're covering today. So those are kind of the seven stories that are in 13, 14, 15, 16. We're not going to read all of those, but really what we see here is Jesus kind of pulling out all the stops with regard to his divinity, who he really is. This, this guy who claims to be God, who puts himself in the same place as the God of the Old Testament. In fact, he uses the same wording of how God identified himself to Moses in one of these stories um, with the disciples. And so now what the disciples have to deal with, what we have to deal with, is who this Jesus really is. And I said life with Jesus, it's complicated. It, it isn't complicated really, but it does get complicated when we try and live it out. The disciples are, we're watching the disciples work through that. You know, at one point, having faith in Jesus, another point, not being real sure about who this Jesus is, and that's going to happen from the time they started walking around with him until Jesus goes to that cross. Even the story about, you know, Peter denying Jesus. 
it's complicated when we've got to actually live it out. And sometimes it's complicated because we're not with Jesus. What I'm asking you, what Matthew's asking us, is to believe the stories that we're reading. Matthew is making statements of fact that this actually happened and this is who Jesus says he is. And you and I are reading that and we're forced with whether we believe it or we don't. Now, if you attend the one connection group that meets in between services, we kind of talked about that today. We talked about whether or not these scriptures, the Bible, what we read from every Sunday is reliable. And we were kind of doing that through textual criticism, all that kind of stuff, manuscripts that we have. We have all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, you still got to believe that Jesus is God. You can believe that these are reliable. That's not enough. You got to get to the place where you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And that can get complicated. These scriptures are being challenged left and right in our day and age. And Matthew is telling us these stories. And so when we do life with Jesus, we're basing our life with Jesus off of the scriptures. That we believe what God has to say to us is found in these scriptures and it's true for us. And so now we're going to read some stories. Now in the beginning, again, Matthew is kind of changing scenes for us. He often does this when he's going to something else. We, got, we just got done with some teaching. Verse 53 of chapter 13, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. We read a couple of those parables. There's seven of those parables. We kind of focused on the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils. After he got done with that teaching, he moved on from there. And coming to his hometown, we know that Jesus was from Nazareth, a backwater town in uh, Jerusalem, or in Israel, I should say. He began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Now, if you keep following along with us in Matthew, you're, you're going to see that word synagogue not connected to Jesus' ministry anymore. Matthew 13 through 16 is kind of the transition point in Matthew's gospel. Things are going to start changing. Things are going to get a little bit more complicated. Things are going to get a little bit more tense. And Jesus is kind of not really welcomed in synagogues anymore to teach. So here he is in his hometown, he's in the synagogue, he's teaching, people are amazed. And when I read these questions that people are asking themselves, it's not just one of curiosity, like where did this man get this wisdom? I wonder where he got it. It actually has in the original a negative connotation to this. Kind of like, who does this guy think he is? And you'll hear that in their questions. Where, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? <clears throat> these are the questions people in the synagogue are asking. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? How dare he come in here and act like he is somebody. And Jesus has this response, and they took offense to him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own home. And so in that town, in Jesus' hometown, he did not do many miracles. He didn't do many there because of their lack of faith. 
So what we see happening, that's kind of Matthew's transition now. I'm not going to read all of 14 and 15. We're actually covering both those chapters in a portion of chapter 16. But he's just letting us know it, it's going to get complicated for you guys. Not that Jesus is making it complicated. He's going to start making it really clear who he is. And as we said before, it's going to demand a response from his disciples, from the crowds. Now, Matthew introduces us uh, to, I had put on the previous screen, a flashback. It's going to be a flashback to John as, as to John the Baptist, as Jesus is kind of bringing a conclusion to the end of his Galilean ministry. Things, as I said, are going to start changing for Jesus and his disciples. And all the stuff Jesus was doing, all the things we've been reading about, all the healings that were taking place, all the teaching that he was doing, you know, that Sermon on the Mount, that Matthew 5 through 7, and, and just people being blown away by his teaching. He's going to start moving away from Galilee and start making that trek to Jerusalem. Now, we all know why that's happening. Obviously, we're reading this with the disciples who Jesus is starting to reveal that to them, but they don't have a clear picture. You and I know, as Matthew's writing this, why Jesus is making his journey now to Jerusalem. And again, as you read this, if you haven't already, if you go home and read it, you're going to see some things begin to change. And it's going to demand a serious response from Jesus' disciples. One of these stories that we find in this portion, when Jesus had heard what had happened, now what happened? Well, you have to read Matthew chapter 14. John the Baptist was beheaded. He was killed. King Herod is hearing about all this stuff that Jesus is doing. And he's thinking to himself, is John the Baptist come back to life? Who, who is this guy? What, what is he doing? I remember John the Baptist, but I had him killed. And Matthew gives us kind of this flashback to what happened with John the Baptist. So again, Matthew's giving us this, it's getting tense. Things are going to get a little dicey for you guys. But that's not because Jesus is starting to uh, be more cryptic about things. He's actually starting to expose more to the disciples of what's going to happen. And so after we get that little flashback, it says in verse 13 of chapter 14, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. This was Jesus' MO a lot of times. And again, things were getting more hostile. But because of it, the giant following that was happening, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. They heard about it, and they followed him to where he was going. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So Jesus kind of is trying to isolate himself with his disciples, but it's impossible to do that because he's got a gigantic following. This story in Matthew 14, what follows what I've just read for you, is one that we've probably all heard. If you grew up in the church, you've heard this story. If you didn't grow up in the church, this story is still mentioned <clears throat> in different settings. It's when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, you know, in Matthew's gospel, he says 5,000 men were counted. Now, we know that that wasn't just the case. There were families, all kinds of people. You're talking more than 5,000 people. Imagine seeing that crowd, this huge crowd. Imagine having that kind of following. 
Jesus could have done a lot of things if he wanted to. He had a huge following, and the crowds were really starting to want him to do some of that. And so he does something amazing. All these people are there. He's healing them, and of course, they all start getting hungry. They're there with him probably more than just a day, and they're starting to get hungry. And so you know the story. There's a couple of fish, some bread, certainly not enough to feed thousands of thousands of people. And what does Jesus do? He gives a word of prayer and thanks to God. He starts breaking the bread and the disciples start distributing it. One basket, another basket, another basket, over 5,000. You know, it could be if they were family, 10,000, I don't know. And everybody's eating and they are completely filled. They're stuffed because we find out there's leftovers. And maybe if you've been following Jesus around for a bit, you remember one of the things he said in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now what we see the crowd doing, because Jesus kind of ushers his disciples into a boat and gets them out of there, and Jesus dismisses the crowd. The crowd saw this guy as the one they've been waiting for. The one that could change things for them, the one that could change things for the rest of their lives. This guy can make food come from nowhere. And Jesus in this episode is really, as every Jew would have remembered, every Jew would have known this story. You would have grown up hearing it. You would have heard it a million times. You would have had to memorize the scripture about it. When the Israelites were wandering around in the desert... And God rained manna down from heaven. He fed them. By God's word, they ate and were nourished. But Jesus is saying to them, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for my ways. And Jesus is giving us this image of God feeding his people again. And being satisfied and overflowing with abundance with how much is left over. But we've talked about this before. Again, we're going to need a response. King Herod thinks he knows who this Jesus is, or he doesn't, and he's terrified because he thinks John the Baptist might be coming back from the dead. And other people think they know what the Messiah is all about. It's about what Jesus is doing. Casting out demons, people being healed, eating from nothing, the teaching that he's doing. He has the ability to have power. Look at this gigantic following with Jesus. He could do anything right now. And so what does Jesus do? Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now, we, we have to just simply kind of speculate a little bit about why Jesus did that. Why does Matthew tell us that Jesus said, you guys get in the boat and head out. I'll get rid of everybody. And part of it was because the expectations of the Messiah. Again, Jesus is showing his divinity. He's not making any uh, complications about that. Look at what he just did. He's comparing himself to what Moses did, except Jesus is the one doing it, saying it is God. He is putting himself in the place of the very God that gave manna to Israel by serving these people. And 
course, if you read John's gospel, we hear Jesus actually say, I am the bread of life. And we know as we move towards Jerusalem and the Last Supper and Jesus breaks the bread, he is the bread of life. But not so that we can eat every day. It's so that we can actually find life in him. So while he's dismissing the crowd because they probably want to try and make him a king, they probably want to try and make him the authority, the power leader in that time, Jesus dismisses them, the disciples go out. And then something, again, amazing happens. It's a story that Matthew's telling to us, and it's supernatural. It can't be just explained. You, you can't explain how this guy with a couple of fish and bread feed thousands of thousands of people. You can't explain this next story either. After he dismissed them, the crowd, he went up to the mountainside by himself to pray, and later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. This is the boat he sent out with the disciples in it, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, again, they're in that stormy sea of Galilee again, and something amazing happens. Another story you probably heard as a kid. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. Jesus just starts walking on the water. Now, they are good distance from land. It's not like he's just walking on some reef. And oh my, that's really amazing. Jesus is walking on this reef. They were much further out. And we know how the depth of the Sea of Galilee, he was in an area where there is an impossibility of just being able to walk on something like that. Jesus is walking on top of the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. And here, if we translate that in the Greek, although the English translated it differently, is the same word as God, how God identified himself to Moses in the Old Testament and multiple times in the Old Testament, I am. Jesus uses those words to his disciples. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sing, cried out, Save me, Lord. Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed in the boat, the wind died down. Now that last part, as amazing as the part of Jesus walking on water, Peter getting out of the boat, walking towards him, and there's lots of messages on what that means and how people have used that and faith and getting out of the boat. I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote the book about getting out of the boat, uh, but that was a whole book written by somebody to talk about that faith. And of course, Peter being the representative of these disciples, they're, they're trying to figure it out, who this Jesus is. And so Peter walks out to him, and, and he starts sinking, and Jesus saves him. And again, it, it's complicated. Peter's just unsure. He says, you of little faith. But he steps into the boat, and everything goes quiet. The winds die down, the waves die down, and it's just a smooth sea again. And Jesus is clearly displaying his divinity to his disciples in this moment. In fact, 
the psalmist, this you can find in Psalm 77, as an image of God, the psalmist writes these words to kind of convey the image of God walking on the water. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty water, as though your footprints were not seen. The psalmist is having all of Israel, this was a psalm used in their worship, to picture God as walking on water. And here, Jesus just did that. And Jesus doesn't even speak a word. At least Matthew doesn't record it in this instance. We've heard Jesus tell the winds and the waves to be quiet, to be silent. But here, Jesus just gets in the boat. And all of creation responds. And the disciples are now faced again with, who is this man? This one who keeps telling us to put our faith in him. Jesus, after this episode, is confronted with uh, a, a challenge from the Pharisees, from the teachers of the law, talking about things that defile a person. And that was a big deal in uh, Jewish day. Everything was about ritual purity. Everything Jesus was doing was the opposite of that. He was touching dead people. He was touching people with leprosy and diseases. He was hanging out with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. He was going through Canaanite places, which were Gentiles, rubbing shoulders with them. Everything Jesus did showed the exact opposite of what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said God wanted. So Jesus has his confrontation with him or with them. And that's still true of today. I remember working at the bed and breakfast in Adamstown before I came here to Schuylkill Haven in pastoral ministry. And we would have people from New York who were Jewish come and stay at our inn. They'd rent the, the house. When they would leave, I would go in and they would have paper plates. They would have uh, plastic silverware. They actually had um, little charcoal grills that you, you know buy at Walmart, the small ones, to cook their food on. They would always leave them, so naturally I would take them home with me because they weren't coming back for them, so got a free grill out of it. They wouldn't touch any stuff that we had in the house. It would make them unclean, ritually impure. And here Jesus is putting his hand on a dead guy, bringing him back to life, putting his hand on this dead little girl, bringing her back to life, embracing this person with leprosy. In these moments, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, yes, but he is teaching his disciples about life with him. This is going to come back up with Peter later on in the book of Acts. And as we get through that time, there's another episode where Jesus is confronted with the teachers of the law. He goes into this Canaanite land, Gentiles, a no-no heals this lady's little girl, revealing to the disciples, revealing to everybody that God is here for all nations, not just Israel. Does another miracle, feeds another 4,000 plus people. And his disciples all along are following him around. And so where Matthew started, you know, we got the interval of being in his hometown and not doing many miracles there. In chapter 14, we're confronted with the question of who this Jesus is and our response to him. 
Matthew ends this section. It's not going to be the same going forward. Things are going to change. You're going to hear that in the messages. And we know that because we're making our way to Easter. And so Jesus, with his disciples, after they've just witnessed all these things, not just of what we saw today, but from chapter 4 onward and all the other stuff we didn't read about, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. This is chapter 16. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, King Herod was like, you must be John the Baptist, come back to life. What about you guys? Well, some say the disciples are just repeating what they've heard. Remember, there's been crowds of thousands upon thousands of people. They've been saying all kinds of stuff about who this Jesus is, about who the Messiah is and what he's come to actually do. Some say John the Baptist. We heard that from King Herod. Others say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, listing people that they knew from the Old Testament were going to pave the way for the, the Messiah to come. And so Jesus digs a little bit deeper, drives the point home a little bit further. What about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Now Matthew wants us to respond to that same question. I wasn't walking around to see Jesus do all this stuff. I'm reading the stories just like you are reading the stories. Matthew is telling us this is what happened. We believe it's reliable because all the textual criticism we have out there, all the manuscripts we have out there that say this book and what we have is reliable, but what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter, who has been the representative for the disciples, answers in this way. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's starting to take hold. But it's complicated. We'll see that it's complicated for Peter and the disciples as we keep moving forward. He makes this great confession. And the disciples who are still with Jesus most likely agree with Peter. They're all in agreement. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You can read that story in the book of Acts. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. He already dismissed that crowd that was trying to make him king, most likely. And he's telling his disciples, you are, the, the truth is being revealed to you. It's, it's been clear now, after witnessing what just took place in 13, 14, 15, and now 16, that Peter is making this confession for these disciples that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And their lives from this point on are never going to be the same. That's what Jesus is looking for. He is demanding a response. He demands that response from us as well. And we've talked about what that looks like since we've started the book of Matthew. And so that same question that Matthew is asking is being asked of us as readers. What do you say? 
That you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe Jesus is the God-man, the one who can make bread come from almost nowhere? The one who can walk on water and just by getting into the boat can calm the seas? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he will take care of you? Remember, do not worry about tomorrow. See how the birds of the air are fed by God? Don't worry about what you will wear or what you're going to eat. Do you believe all that stuff about Jesus? Everything Jesus said up to this point. Who do you say Jesus is? Because your response to that question is going to direct the rest of your life. Our response to that question determines the rest of our life. And as Matthew starts taking us towards Jerusalem, the the disciples are going to be faced with this in a very real and personal way. Your response to what Jesus says about who he is will direct the rest of your life. Have you responded to Jesus? Are you allowing Jesus to direct the rest of your life? Now, maybe Jesus isn't calling and directing you to Liberia, but that's why I'm going. I have no other reason to go to Liberia, really. It's not like the high destination location for a vacation. Um... I don't know what I'm going to eat out in the bush. I just started my malaria medication today. And on the side effects is dizziness. So thankfully I didn't pass out up here in front of you. I had to go get a bunch of shots to go. Just close your ears, Jess. Don't listen to any of this stuff. The reason I'm going is because of my response to Jesus. I have no other reason to go there except... When you respond to Jesus, he directs the rest of your life. Maybe he's not calling you to go to Liberia. But he's calling you to do something. And your response to him ought to direct the rest of your life. When I went to Liberia for the first time, they, they like to give you a Liberian name. So my Liberian name is Ajay. Kind of spelled A-J-A-Y or A-G. They spell it differently all the time. I'm not sure which is the right way. Ajay is the name I've been given, and the name means, because of us, you came. Because of them, these brothers and sisters in Liberia, you left your home, your family, and you came. The only reason I'm doing that is because of my response to Jesus. When you respond to Jesus, he will direct the rest of your life. And he is not looking for a lukewarm response. He is calling us to to die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. You need to do that before we get to Easter. Matthew is putting us at this transition point. You need to respond to Jesus so that he can direct the rest of your life. My response to that is I leave tomorrow for Liberia, and I know some folks had wanted to pray for me prior to leaving. We did that in first service, and we're going to do that again um, right now. David's going to come up, and he's going to pray uh, for me, but if you'd like to come up and just lay your hands on me, you can do that, and uh, David's going to lead us in prayer. So if you want to come up and just lay your hands on me before I leave, this is just kind of our way of me going with all of you. I don't go by myself. In fact, when I go to Liberia, I 
always say, I'm coming with greetings from Grace EC Church in Schuylkill Haven, because I'm going with you. You're going with me. And so I appreciate your prayer. So I'm going to ask, I'll stand down here, since I don't want to be too tall in front of everybody on that thing there. Yes, my, my wife can get in here. And uh, are you going to start it, Scott, or are you going to, okay, and then we'll just pray if you want to gather in here. <laughs> All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Grace Church. We thank you for Pastor Ted. Uh, we thank you for his willingness, his heart to lead us, and for those that are in Liberia. Uh, we're so grateful for you, Heavenly Father, uh, coming to him and leading him. And we ask that while he is there, that you protect him, Heavenly Father, that you give him the words that these people need to hear, and that they bring him back here safely, Heavenly Father, to his flock here as well. We love you, and we thank you, Heavenly Father, for being there, for using this man, Pastor Ted, and for touching so many lives. In your name, Lord. Dear Lord, we just pray that you fill him up now before he goes. And Lord, help him to, God, just overflow and to give out of a full cup to all those he comes in contact with. Lord, in his travels, Lord, even those who aren't Christian, who he's not there to specifically minister to, Lord, pray that you just put people in his path that can know your love and know you through Ted's actions going and glorifying you with his call. Lord, we also pray that you protect him while he's there, Lord, from all these illnesses and everything going on in the world. We pray that you just give him safe travel and, Lord, bring him back to his family and his church family. Lord, we just thank you for what you are doing in Pastor Ted's life, and we thank you for all the people that you're going to put in his path over there. Lord, we pray that your spirit just overflows in the Liberian churches. Lord, so much to the point that even Ted comes back changed, Lord, new. God, seeing all the work you're doing, seeing how you are pouring out your love, not just here, but Lord, all throughout your world to all these people. So, God, we give this trip to you, and we give Pastor Ted into your hands. Lord, protect him, keep him safe, and love him over this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank Amen. you, <clears throat> everyone. Worship team, you can stick around up here, and we'll close it out. I'll move my stuff here. The last song we're going to sing here this morning is really what uh, we're communicating uh, everywhere we go. I don't know how you came here this morning, but I, but I hope this song helps you remember. Because as Rick and I go to Liberia, this is really our message to the Liberians. Their lives are very different than ours. They have different struggles than we have. Um, but God's goodness doesn't change no matter where you are on this planet. And that's true for you also, that you can experience God's goodness today. 
when you respond to who Jesus is and he directs the rest of your life. Let's stand together and sing, Goodness of God.